Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, a podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm not your host, J.D. Flynn. I am Pillar co-founder and editor Ed Condon, and I'm not even subbing in for J.D. He's right here, but on three whiffs, he still couldn't make contact with his normal... Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. Ed just jumped in with an introduction because I whiffed the introduction not once, not twice, but three times. Um... Uh, uh, and I'm about to whiff it again because I don't remember which parts I've said and which parts I haven't. But if I didn't say this, I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder and introduction guru and uh, and mentor, Ed Condon, who is uh, schooling me on how to begin our show. Uh, Ed, thank you for that. I'm very grateful. For no, you. It, uh, um, I, I'm not schooling you on it. I just – I hear the correct introduction to the podcast probably more than any other person because you say it, but I, I listen to it every week. Three or That's four true. times. That's a very good point. And and this week I am a little, <laughs> I'm a little lightheaded right now. So I'm if, if I seem a little off my game, um, it's it's pharmacological, it's medicinal, it is cough and cold medicine. So you are. Uh, we are recording this podcast on Friday morning, and uh, you are ill. Um, you have caught the baby's cold, as uh, as happens to parents everywhere. And you took some cold medicine, and you're a little bit uh, out to lunch. And I am, uh, of course. On a very cool, very interesting, very, I think, important reporting trip in an undisclosed location, which I will say is near the sea, um, doing some, I think, very interesting reporting. That's going to take me a little while to write, so I'm not sure exactly when the story will come out. But um, but here we are, each in our own way, not in our usual um, mode of being. Yes, but it's delightful nevertheless. It's Friday, the sun is shining, the birds are singing. It's all it's all wonderful, JD. The seas are calm, Ed. I can say that the seas are calm. Ah. You know, I live in Colorado, so it's rare that I can say that. But I'm I'm actually watching the sea, the calm seas, and uh, as we as we do this podcast, I'm watching sort of sailboats over the over the water. I'm 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 blessed, Ed. I mean, I really am. I'm very. Uh, I, I've been doing. I've been in. A, I've been on a reporting trip this week for the past couple of days, and. Um, Doing I, honestly some really actually heavy reporting about some serious stuff, but in a very 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 beautiful um, place, and uh, and right now I'm just sort of looking out the window at uh, the ocean and sailboats and what have you. Uh, do you, do you feel a great novel welling up inside you? <laughs> well, uh, no, but I did um, when I was on the plane coming out here. I did I I wanted to kind of read the right kind of so I'm in I'm in New England. And uh, I, I wanted to read the right kind of thing, knowing that I was going to the sea in New England. And so I started reading Moby Dick. And, and I have to tell you, I, I'm, I realize it's a great tragedy of my life that I've not read Moby Dick before, because this book is good. It, 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 it has a reputation for a reason. It is allegedly a very, very good book. Have you read it? I haven't. Do it. I, I know. You I should. Right? I think a lot of people haven't. And I think a lot of people are intimidated. And they are thinking they already know, okay... Captain Ahab's chasing a whale, right, or whatever. But it's um, it's a it's first of all, um, Moby Dick is hilarious. I, I'm not sure if I've read it or not. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, but I think you'd remember. It's very well, good. Well, the thing is, there are parts of the book that I can remember. There are scenes of the book that aren't usually in, so far as I can tell, adaptations of it or or whatever, or sort of the the normal Cliff Notes greatest hits of it that I. I do have memories of, but I don't remember ever reading the book. So I really, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure if I've read it or not at this point. It may be one of those things that I read when I was a teenager and I have retained some bits of it, but not the overall force of having read the book. I don't know. Maybe I've read it. Maybe I should read it again. You're welcome to borrow 
you should. You're welcome to borrow my copy, but it's 800 pages, and I don't, I don't have as much time in my life for novels as I'd like. So you're going to need to wait a couple of weeks. That's fair, because it's 800. It's not 800. Um, if this makes sense, uh, it's not 800 John Grisham pages, right? It's 800 Herman Melville pages. Mm-hmm. So you gotta. I mean, you gotta. It's but it's you gotta do a little work for it. But it's very funny, and uh, and I'm and and uh, I'm glad to have picked it up. Well, cool, good. I'm glad. Okay. That is not what we are no, here. To no talk more chit chat. No banter. We we said we we're going to no, do. No, we that. did an entire episode. Look, if you're here for the banter, we did an entire banter bonus episode this week. We had an episode earlier in the week called Hat Chat Bonus Episode. The hats hats are back, or something like that. Um, and uh, and you can check that out. It's in your probably in your podcast app, presumably if you're listening to this episode. But we're because we did that. Now it's time to get down to business. So if you don't like the banter, this is the episode for you. And what what have we had so far? Literary chat, right? I mean, if you don't like the banter, you probably like literary chat. I mean, yeah. I mean, we yes. Everyone likes a good. Everyone likes everyone likes good books. Yeah. Although this, it's not exactly highbrow literary chat for me to say. It's really funny, actually, even though it doesn't read like a John Grisham novel. <laughs> well, you you're taking your turn as a man of the people, and I applaud that. <laughs> okay. What I really want to talk about, Ed, right now, in an important way, is the particular church. Yes. Any particular church in particular? Well, I want to talk about the notion of particular churches. Um, Ed, a diocese is a portion of the people of God which is entrusted to a bishop for him to shepherd with the cooperation of the presbyterium. Presbyterium. So that, adhering to its pastor and gathered by him in the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the Eucharist, it constitutes a particular church in which the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Christ is truly present and operative. A diocese is a portion of the people of God, which is entrusted to a bishop for him to shepherd with the cooperation of his presbyterate, so that adhering to its pastor and gathered by him in the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the Eucharist, it constitutes a particular church in which the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Christ is truly present and operative. A diocese, Ed, that's Canon 369 of the Codex Eurus Canonici, if you're keeping score at home. Um, A diocese is a particular church, 368, particular churches in which and from which the one and only Catholic church exists are, first of all, dioceses, unless there are some other kinds. Um, the particular church, the diocese, is a real and existing expression of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, expression of the divinely founded um, moral person, which is the Catholic communion. The diocese is not, uh, if you read a definition like that, a sort of administrative sub-region of a sociological phenomenon called the Catholic Church. Rather, the diocese, the particular church, is a a living theological reality in which the um, communion of the church is uh, is manifested and expressed and operative, as the law says. That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? It, It's a very big deal. I mean, we often say on the show, when discussing various ecclesiastical structures, for example, um, different departments of the Roman Curia or the phenomena of bishops' conferences that, you know, these are merely ecclesiastical creations. They are administrative tools that the church has um, brought into being on her own authority and in her own wisdom and according to her own good judgment and prudence, but they are not necessarily what Christ had in mind when he founded his church. This is not so of a diocese. I, the, diocese is, um, the diocese is this living reality in which the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is present and operative and is... As ancient as the church herself, right? As ancient as the apostolic age herself, the apostles go out and become what missionaries, and um, and then um, themselves become or themselves sort of appoint um, diocesan bishops, right? 
Yes, I mean so the, the entire is a set of letters to the churches of the of the of exactly the, uh, right. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what I was going to say. Is that if you if you read the New Testament after the Gospels, that the letters are to particular churches. They are to the church in Philadelphia, to the church in Corinth, to the church in or the church of Ephesus or whatever. That they are that from from the very beginning, the church has recognized that there are particular churches. That each of these particular churches has its own character, has its own flavor, has its own unity. If you read. Um, the, if you like, uh, I don't know how to, I, there's probably a proper term for this, but what in, what I simply produced the second long reading in the office, um, uh, every day, um, taken from the church fathers and stuff, you will get frequent exhortations about the shepherds, the bishops, and sometimes it'll be describing the office of bishop and you know, what they're, what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing things like that. But more often than not, it's, it's an exhortation to the people to remain faithful to and in communion with their bishop to have this corporate identity that we, I mean, the the idea of a particular church is so important because it's linked to the very concept of who we are as the people of God, that we are not saved as individuals, that we are not called as individuals, that the the mystery of salvation, God's plan for the earth, is that we are not um, an atomized set of ones walking towards God. That we are called as a people. That the action of God through history is to call and gather to Himself a people, and that this people has an identity. Indeed, it has many identities. That each each particular church has its identity. That we find a proper place within our within our diocese, within our church, as members of a family. That the the interrelational aspect of all of that one with each other, to the bishop, to the presbyterium, um, that this hierarchy and dynamic and interpersonal relationship is an articulation of God's intention for the church on earth. That This isn't something light or administrative or an idle construct, that it has um, not just function, but intention behind it. Yeah. You know, I have not thought about before something that you said that struck me. I have not... uh... I have thought about the diocese as a deeply theological significant reality, and I, but I have not thought about the notion of the diocese sort of existing by divine ordinance. And I suppose in a certain sense it's true that no particular diocese exists by divine ordinance except the, the see of Peter itself, but, but, but the, the notion of the church as a communion of local churches led by a bishop the, the notion of the, yeah, the, the ecclesiology which says that the church is a communion of churches led by a bishop, that does exist by divine ordinance. That's not an accident of history, but a manifestation of the reality of the, of the church's very identity. Is it not? Yeah. Yes, I think yeah. so. And, and even to an extent, the, the plurality of character <laughs> amongst the particular churches is itself a, a manifestation of the church's Catholicity. The, the the church is a communion. The church is not, um, it's not a hegemony. It's not the, the, the we often talk about um, whenever we're talking about liturgy or, or various other kinds of things, the sort of homogenizing tendency uh, that can exist in the church, particularly in the Latin church. Latinization does, of everything. Indeed. But even within the Latin church, mm-hmm. there can be a, a trend towards a, a sort of homogenizing one size fits all. We must all look exactly the same and all that. But to say that this is this is not the history of the church. This is not how the church has. This is not how the church was created. It's not how the church has lived through its entire history. That the particular churches have a particular character and they are distinct from each other. And and this is this is known and this this was willed from the beginning. That you know the the churches are as different as the apostles that founded them. <laughs> that you mm-hmm. know we still have the 
the sort of, if you like, the ancient patriarchal seas of, of the ancient church that we that we honor and recognize we we have in the in the West. We we wouldn't expect um, a diocese in Kansas to be identical to um, a diocese in. In a downtown European city, you know, the diocese of Paris is not the archdiocese. The archdiocese of Paris is not the diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, right. um, and nor should they be. Right. The, these these are different people gathered around a different bishop with a different history. That we are all, you know, members of the same body, and there are some root things that we absolutely have in common and should be indistinguishable in faith, moral sacraments, hierarchy, that kind of thing. Um, but that each of the children of God in the church has, has its own character. And that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's right. Why are we talking about this, Edward? Why are we having a theological excursus on the notion of the particular church on this fine Friday morning as I stare out on, I have just discovered um, to my, uh, to my South um, East, a, a sort of a, there must be a sandbar or a reef about a 700 feet from the shore because I've just noticed waves breaking at a place in the sea. So as I watch these waves break at a spot in the sea, Ed, and as I now realize that there are boats sort of going around that sandbar, why on earth are we talking about the particular church? Is that what we're talking about? I've taken a lot of decongestants, J.D. I think <laughs> I, I've just noticed, I think my trousers might be on backwards. I, we is that are, what we're I, will... I assume we're talking about this because of Steubenville. We are talking about the particular church because we reported this week on Monday, 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 Monday morning. We reported this week on Monday morning that the Diocese of Steubenville had called the Bishop of Steubenville, Bishop Jeffrey Monforton, had called an all hands meeting for Monday afternoon. And we had confirmed with sources, foreign and domestic, that uh, the bishop was going to announce to his priests uh, a, a forthcoming merger of the Diocese of Steubenville with its neighboring Diocese of Columbus, Ohio, um, the heart of it all. Uh, um, the Diocese of Steubenville is one of the smallest dioceses by popul- by Catholic population in the United States. It has fewer than um, 30,000 Catholics, 29,000 Catholics and change, and uh, it covers, um, I want to say, seven mostly rural counties in, um, in the Ohio Valley uh, uh, of Eastern Ohio. Uh, it, uh, it has existed since the 50s when it was carved out of the uh, i'm saying 50s is it 50s uh i will i will double check that but i believe so it has existed since the 50s ish when it was actually carved out of the diocese of columbus um because the diocese of steubenville was a growing was a growing place um uh and 40s. 40s 44 and steubenville itself was a growing place because of a steel boom uh and so this diocese was sort of carved out as the population of steubenville Boomed uh, it, with uh, with the production of, of steel along the uh, along the Ohio River there in the Ohio River Valley, um, but the the bishop called together his priests and his people and uh, and he told them that because of uh, the declining population, um, uh, I've, I'm I've, I'm told I, I actually had an interview with the bishop this week, uh, which I'll publish next week as part of some more reporting on this. But but he told me that while the diocese has a declining population, it actually has exceptionally high mass attendance, that as many as 50% of Catholics in the Diocese of Steubenville are attending mass, which is really uh, unusual. Um, but nevertheless, because it has a declining population, because the population, uh, jobs are growing more and more scarce in the Ohio Valley, and the population is getting um, poorer, because priests are retiring at a much faster rate than they can be ordained, and because of some financial difficulties in the diocese, which we'll come back to, he had uh, decided or proposed to the bishops of Ohio 
last year that um, it was time to merge the diocese back into the diocese of Columbus. Now, this is uh, an unusual thing. This doesn't happen every day. And the reason why we're talking about what the particular church is is because we want to convey how significant this is. The bishop had proposed that the Diocese of Steubenville, a particular church in which is existent and operative, the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, be merged into its neighbor, the Diocese of Columbus. And uh, the, he, he told me in an interview this week that the bishops of Ohio voted last year to approve that idea consultatively. They're not the deciders, but they decided to approve that idea consultatively. He talked with the Apostolic Nuncio. He talked with the Congregation for Bishops. The next step is a vote at the uh, fall meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, probably an executive session, so we won't exactly know what uh, what happens with that vote oh, um, we'll as know. it's happening. <laughs> we won't know what happens with yeah, that vote we as, it's hap- as it's happening. Um, but uh, but we will try to see what we can learn um, uh, uh, post facto. Um, but um, but the, the the decider on this is of course the Bishop of Rome, the Roman Pontiff, um, the Vicar of Christ on Earth, uh, Francesco the First, and um, and so this process is moving along. And uh, we had written last year that this was probably going to begin happening in the United States. That there were a number of dioceses. Not even last year. I think I I, I think I remember ago. writing. Yeah, like May, I think I wrote about this and said, okay, so some mergers are on the way, that get ready. This was on the way. And this was because we were kind of hearing this at that time from friends um, in Rome. And also, um, you know, we were just sort of looking at what we were listening to some of the conversations among bishops themselves and just looking at what we sort of see. And we saw this is coming, right? That, but also there's been a trend. And this is what makes the Steubenville announcement so interesting. Well, there's been a sort of related trend, right? I was to say, Steubenville announced it. It wasn't so much announced as me. <laughs> We kind of did that, but sorry. The, the the Steubenville situation, what's interesting about it is this, it is, we're talking about an extinctive union of one diocese back into another. And the reason why we started pointing out six months ago or whatever it was that diocesan mergers are likely on the way is there's been a trend, um, not a huge one, but, you know, in the life and history of the church, a, a significant one in recent years of Pope Francis has been appointing a series of uh, episcopal appointments, which have basically unified the diocese at persona episcopi. That, you unified know, the, two dioceses, neighboring dioceses. One yeah, and saying you're going to share a bishop. He's going right. to be properly the bishop of both. The two he's dioceses to, will exist, but the Pope is yes. going to appoint one bishop for both. Is yes, he's, he's going to happening. be both bishop right. of X and bishop of Y. He will, if you like, wear two hats or two mitres yeah. mm-hmm. as the mood takes him. And this is, I think, was widely seen, it should be widely seen as, you know, paving the way for the merger of dioceses. But we've jumped straight to the end here uh, with Steubenville. They're going, right, they're going right there was to... not, there was not a sort of, there was not an announcement that there would first be an in persona episcopi joinder of two dioceses, rather that there would be an extinctive merger of one into the other. And what's the difference? The difference is that when the bishop appoints, when the pope appoints a bishop to lead two dioceses, He's, he's recognizing the continued existence of those realities. Both of those juridic and theological realities continue to exist, but um, you know, as what seems, at least in principle, to be a temporary measure, he's giving them one leader. Um, this is different. The, the, if, this mer- if the Holy Father approves this merger, at the end you will have one diocese called the Diocese of Columbus, the priests of Sumville being incarnated in the Diocese of Columbus, the people of God of the Diocese of Sumville will become part of the people of God of the Diocese of Columbus, the, one, the two things will become one. And, um, and, and what pontiff has joined, I suppose no man will render asunder except for a new pope in the future. But, um, but it is a much more permanent and serious step, and one that is not only kind of 
a governance decision like the appointment of two bishops ad persona episcopi, but a, a theological decision, is it not, Ed? I think it is, but it, it's also a, an ecclesiological sign of the times. I think what strikes me about this is, first of all, I, I'm in no way confident that Steubenville will, will be the last such diocese in the United States that this happens with, and I, I suspect we'll we'll see similar action taken in other parts of the country in in the months and years to come. But what's fascinating to me about this is how fast this has happened. Mm-hmm. That the Diocese of Steubenville is not even a hundred years old. That when a diocese is created, and don't get me wrong, diocese um, are rise and fall in in um, in the ex- in the existence of the life of the church in the same way that human society does. That you know, we this is why we have when bishops are given a sort of titular see. It's the titular see of a place that used to be a diocese, but isn't anymore because there isn't a city there anymore. That it's no longer you know what it was. That the the see the seat just isn't there, and that's you know human society is fluid and always changing, and patterns of you know, where people live and um, you know where governing cities are and all that stuff. It's always changing, but nevertheless, the intention with the erection of a diocese is that it is intended to be permanent. Nothing in the church with juridic personality is meant to be temporary. If it is given public church personality, the intention is it will be permanent. And it's not even made it 100 years. Right. And I yeah, think right. that is, and you look at the number of dioceses that were created in the United States in the first half of the 20th century, and it's not nothing. It's like, it's a lot mm-hmm. um, of new dioceses that were created less than 100 years ago. And I think we're now going to see them start contracting back I mean, that is not for nothing, but, you know, this week was the 60th anniversary of Vatican II. You know, I think this, taken in the round and taken in the context of this week and the anniversary of Vatican II and everything else, we need to just sort of have a moment to put our eyes on the moment in church history we are living in. I don't mean just today, but I mean this period of 100 years that we're we're sort of still in following the opening of of Vatican II, that I don't think we truly understand that we are still in the middle of, you know, what is the equivalent of an oil tanker doing a handbrake U-turn? Yeah, that's you know, right. We, the, the direction of travel of the church was for many centuries a sort of slow, steady, expected institutional growth, a growth of footprint, a growth of, um, you know, institutions alongside it, whether it is schools or charities or religious orders and all this other sort of stuff. And we have, we have done a 180 in, in what is for the life of the church, a heartbeat and a half. And and still is, I mean, uh, in the aggregate, the, uh, the church is indeed in a period of growth, but in, in, um, in Europe and, and certain parts of America, we did some analysis, some demographic analysis earlier this year that, that showed that there are a few things that are happening, basically, with sort of Rust Belt and East Coast dioceses that are happening sort of all at once. Um, one is um, is institutional disaffiliation. That fewer people on the whole are practicing, sort of, are exercising sort of religious practice in the United States across uh, across religious, you know, denomination, Christian denominations, as it were, and um, across other religious identities as well. That there's just a period of of, of, of religious disaffiliation that correlates to a broader sort of um, moment of institutional disaffiliation, in which people express less and less sort of trust, engagement with, and identity with um, large social institutions. So that's the thing that's happening. Two, um, an aging of uh, of uh, of America, right? I mean, just um, you know, uh, just demographically, people are getting older, and um, that's sort of coupled with 
the places where um, where people are moving. So Rust Belt cities are getting older while families are relocating to the South and the West and especially the Southwest. And so places that were once robust American population centers are no longer. I thought about this recently because I was in Boston recently and um, you you were there too, right? Were you in Boston with me? Were we in Boston? I went to had went to a great went to a great pub in Boston recently. And were you? There I did not me? go to the pub in Boston. I flew through Boston to meet okay. you and go somewhere else. But my my actual time in in the city of Boston was a couple of hours. It was basically well, was, layover time. I was um, I was in Boston recently and I went to a kind of pub in the historic downtown of Boston and saw the Freedom Trail and all of this thing. And um, I was thinking, you know, Boston is this sort of a keystone of American sort of uh, an American cultural touchstone in many, many ways. We, you know, obviously Boston figures hugely into our, into our uh, history, but also, you know, you have a certain sense of what it means to think about someone being sort of from Boston or a particular sort of identifying culture that comes with the notion of being from Boston and a particular sort of thing that you might think about about Boston and the church, right? That there's Boston is this Catholic place. Um, and it was not until I was there and thinking, like, if you say Boston, people think, wow, this big East Coast city, right? And it has all this sort of institutional footprint of a big East Coast city. But Boston is a smaller city uh, by, you know, in population than, this, than the, the large city to which I live adjacent, namely the city of Denver. You know, and Denver is, uh, Denver is a city whose population is growing. Boston is a po- city whose population is declining. Um, Denver, ha- you know, has a, a probably a lot more... Um, business growth and these kinds of things. But Denver doesn't figure prominently into sort of the American cultural landscape. If you say someone's from Denver, it doesn't sort of connote anything in the way that saying someone is from Boston does or Phoenix. If you say someone's from Phoenix, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, no, uh, on the, uh, yeah, but to the point, I assume you're really yeah, disagree if you would like. No, it's not that I, I yes, in, in wider American culture, I'm not sure saying you're from Denver means anything, but the, the particular ter- church of Denver does have a real personality. That's true. If you, That's true. Yeah. If you say to true. someone, "Oh, if you say of, if you say, oh, he's a Denver Catholic," that means something. Yeah, that's very true. That's very even true. If you, very even if you couldn't give a perfect definition, identity. there's that's a true. flavor. There's a there is a sense of what that means. That it is a particular church, Shacos and lay apostolic initiative and those kinds of things. That's right. Yeah, maybe, you're maybe right. Maybe I'm under under failing to appreciate that. UJD are very much, despite being from New Jersey, a Denver Catholic. Oh, no, I know. I am very, very much a Denver Catholic, and I do fit the stereotypes. I just, I guess, I just. My point is, um, some of these things which have been long, some of these places which have been long-standing, sort of significant historical and cultural touchstones of, of American life on the whole and American um, Catholic life are being, you know, uh, are, are becoming less significant by population, but also less significant culturally. And sure. The like seas of Baltimore and Philadelphia are no longer the... His, the they're historical, right? And a yeah. place like Houston, Houston is one of the biggest dioceses in America. Houston Galveston might be the second... Or, well, I, I'm guessing... I think it is the second. I think it's LA is first and Houston Galveston is the second. You think bigger than Chicago? Yeah. Okay. So that's just the point, right? I, I mean, think. But um, I mean, we, can, we can go to the numbers on that. But. We can go to the numbers by that. Houston Galveston, it looks to me like it has the fourth largest Catholic population in America, or fifth or something like that. But the point is still, it's not sort of an institutional East Coast place that you would think about as, um, as being kind of a, um, a major center of Catholicism. And, yes, it is, and yet it is one of the big, big, big growing sort of indeed centers of, of Catholic identity and culture in America. The Diocese of Orange. I mean, sort of what do you think about the Diocese of Orange, except that it's kind of suburbs it of LA. It has a crystal cathedral. It has a crystal cathedral. But in fact, it's one of the largest dioceses in America. So um, the East Coast Rust Belt dioceses are declining. 
right? By, by because Catholics are moving Others other places. Are growing. Right. The, but again, this is like I said. This is the this is how we get titular sees. Is that mm-hmm. the right. the tide of humanity around the church and the church's moves own moves around, right? Yeah, yeah, moves around. The people mm-hmm. move, but particular churches have a lifespan in human history. They rise, they fall, they they're born, they die. What what's interesting? And for so we me have is, expected that we would see that in the U.S. But here's what's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, what's for me? What's interesting is. As I as I mentioned earlier, that how fast this has happened—that the lifespan of a diocese you normally would chart in centuries—and in this case, we're not going to get to the first birthday of Steubenville. It looks like, yeah, you know, it's, it's going to the first been, centenary of Steubenville, rather. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and I think that, it's centuries, yeah. Um, that you don't see um, that you don't see this. Um, at least we don't know if we'll see this intermediary step of um, of an in persona episcopi sort of joinder. Now, the Pope could do that of his own volition, couldn't he? He could. He's uh, he has full universal immediate jurisdiction. Yeah, the Pope's about he, the Pope could do that, right? The, do what he likes. The, the bishops of the U.S. could recommend the extinctive merger of the diocese of Steubenville, and the Pontiff could say, "Well, we're going to do this thing first. Yes. Um, or the bishops of the U.S. could themselves recommend, um, uh, rather than an extinctive merger or kind of in persona episcopi joinder. But here's the thing: I don't know that that would. I don't know that there's much of a point to that because. It seems to me that one of the driving forces, when I predicted that we would start seeing um, diocesan mergers, I, my thesis was all of the trends that hold for dioceses within themselves and the sort of federating and satelliting and consolidating of parish structures within dioceses was also true within a lot of American diocesan life. And so if part of what is driving this is Lack of um, available ministers, declining, you know, declining or um, advancing a average age amongst um, the clergy of a diocese, the relative expense of centralized bureaucracy, the potential for economies of scale, all of that sort of stuff. You don't realize any of that if you just do a unification in the person of the bishop, that you still are maintaining the entire administrative footprint of two dioceses, which presumably part of the reason that we're having this conversation is you're looking to do away with that duplication, that you want to have, I'm sorry to speak in such mechanistic terms, but economies of scale. Um, and you won't see any of that if you if you do it that way. So, And I think that's why we haven't just we're seeing this, you know, there's going to be a debate about it at the USCCB for a consultative vote, all this. And I think people are sort of getting themselves ready for that. Um, it's not a question of a shortage of bishops, although there is definitely, we've reported a lot about this. Um, there it, is indeed it, a shortage of yeah, folks, you know, it's harder, Episcopal hard candidates to get willing to say yes, yes who are qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's the primary driving force here with Steubenville, it's not my understanding that any of the bishops involved in either the two dioceses are superannuated or likely to be soon. You know, it's it's not that they they can't find a new bishop for a vacancy. That that this is this is about something else. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I think you're right. Um, I, I think you're right. At the same time, um, Ed, um, the the joinder of two dioceses in persona episcopi would not achieve the same kind of. Um, economies of scale that the uh, that the that the extinctive merger of one into the other would achieve you are 100 percent correct about that that is true the reason i wonder if bishops might suggest that in this case or the reason i think it's it's possible that bishops might suggest that in this case or even that the holy see might decide to do that in this case is that um, what happens in steubenville as is as is often speaking as an alumni of the franciscan university of steubenville as is often the case what happens at steubenville impacts 
the church across the, the United States. Um, At least in Denver, it does. <laughs> what happens in Steubenville will that, impact the church. For anyone who was confused by that, that's a joke about all Steubenville grads moved to Denver. But. Uh, buy a pair of Chacos. Get that, join like Sometimes they move to Nebraska, too. And, yeah. Um, okay. What happens in Steubenville will impact the church universal because we do know that, I mean, Steubenville is not even the smallest diocese in America. It's not even the poorest diocese in America. Uh, we did see, it's not the first to merge recently, right? So in 2020, the Holy Father merged the Diocese of Juneau with the with the Archdiocese of, um, of Anchorage to create the Archdiocese of Juneau Anchorage, which is um, now, or Anchorage Juneau maybe, which is now operating to uh, two chanceries, one in Juneau, one in Anchorage. And and whose merger, you know, um, uh, did, was not anticipated. There was not a sort of awareness before it. The pillar didn't, um, the, well, the pillar didn't exist, so the pillar certainly didn't break it, but there was no sort of expected news coverage of it. I'm not going to hold that. us to having to break news that it happened before we existed. I think that's an unreasonable <laughs> standard that we, we shouldn't get into. But still, um, you know, this one, I think people have, because there has been this coverage, people have had their eyes on it. And, uh, and what happens uh, with Steubenville will impact what happens with other mergers uh, in the church as well. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ed, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by The Saint Maker. The Saint Maker is a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner that aims to help you reignite your faith, succeed in life, and experience real spiritual freedom. Uh, that is right. It is... I, I, I like this thing. I've I've seen a copy of it. Um, it does the thing which I like, and I have tried to find sort of life hacks around to prompt me towards prayer, prompt me towards contemplation, prompt me towards as well, also sort of fitting in with the framework of a normal working day. So I, th- this thing would seem to do all of the things that I have set like a hundred different alarms and alerts on my phone to do and stuff like that. So I, I like this. It seems like a very good idea to me. Yeah, the uh, the, the Saint Maker one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner draws both from, um, you know, Catholic wisdom about having a rhythm of life and having periods of work, prayer, study, recreation, setting goals, doing an examination of conscience, being thoughtful um, about the use and stewardship of your time, and also draws from sort of the best of um, of uh, a productivity research today about how people's brains work and how um, understanding a bit about our neurology can help us better to plan uh, the use of our time. So drawing from those two sources, the Saint Maker aims to keep you focused, it aims to keep you productive, and it aims to really encourage you to do the things by which the Lord keeps you on fire for the faith every day. Yes, and there is a free trial offer available now. You can try it for 90 days risk-free. If you decide it's not for you, you return your Saint Maker for a full refund, including shipping. And if you're a pillar listener and you want to learn more about this and get 10% off your first Saint Maker, you can go to thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and use the promo code PILLAR, all capital letters, at checkout. Uh, if, you want the, if you want the promo code, and we want you to want the promo code um, because we want you to have this thing. It's really great. And we also want you to have the promo code because um, if you use the promo code, then advertisers will know that Pillar listeners are um, willing purchasers of great things. And uh, we want you to be a willing purchaser of this great thing. So open up your browser or take out your phone or do whatever you do. Um, go to the Saintmaker, thesaintmaker.com slash Pillar. And if you buy the thing, uh, be sure to use the promo code, all caps, Pillar, uh, to get your 10% discount today. Okay, and as is so often, we're back. As is so often the case, what happens in Steubenville will impact the church. There's a lot of attention paid. There's a lot of awareness of this. Um, there's a lot of awareness of this 
forthcoming merger. And I think in a certain way, and Bishop Monforton has been, we reported the news on Monday, and subsequently Bishop Monforton has been out in the media talking about this. He gave interviews to, to both local media and Catholic media this week. I talked to him this week, but I'm going to hold off on running that because I'm going to con- contextualize it in some reporting that I'm working on about this merger right now. Um, but um, because Bishop Monforton is out there with a the media plan talking, talking, talking about this, because people are aware of it, people know that the conference is going to vote on it next month, there's attention paid on it. And so I do think what ha- what Steubenville does, or what the Holy See does with Steubenville, could become a kind of um, uh, a kind of template or a kind of vadi mecum for um, for the extinctive merger of dioceses in the future. And you know, you do point out that um, it it has moved uh, relatively quickly, both in the lifespan of Steubenville, but also uh, you know, this seems like it was it's uh, maybe a long time coming, but also um, seems the plan at least to to skip what the Pope has been using as an intermediary step. So, I mean, I, I don't know, just given the theological significance of the diocese uh, itself, I would not be surprised by, and I don't know because I haven't really talked to bishops about this, but I would not be surprised if bishops, if there's there's a cadre of bishops who are saying, shouldn't we recommend the Pope try, um, you know, something which is an intermediary step, which would allow the dioceses to more easily share resources and for the one to sort of support the other, but give the give the one sort of uh, give give a, a, a bit more of a shake to the one to see what's going to happen. On the other hand, they may just say, well, we trust the bishops of Ohio. The bishops of Ohio have recommended this. They're the ones closest to the to the uh, to the reality. The bishop of Steubenville himself is close, obviously, to the reality. And they may just, you know, there may not be any conversation at all. They may just approve approve it, and the Holy See may do the same. So, I mean, you know, we're going to sort of see how the conference responds to this and how sort of engaged the bishops' conference is about this and the bishops are about this. And then we're going to see the same thing about the Congregation for Bishops. Is this, it, will this be, and we'll learn from Steubenville about other dioceses too, will it be that once sort of the diocesan bishop says, it's time to make this call, um, will it be sort of a... a rubber stamp check marks all the way up, or will there be more of an examining scrutiny of this sort of before it happens? I, I would be shocked, I, which isn't to say it won't happen. It's just to say if it does happen, I will be shocked if the U.S. bishops as a whole at the USCCB um, fail to rubber stamp what the bishops of the two dioceses involved have clearly think is the right thing to do and what the bishops of Ohio think is the right thing to do. I, I It is my sense of the USCCB, that they tend to trust each other. They tend to trust their brother bishops to know what's best in their own backyards. And I I would be very surprised to learn that they, in this case, turned around and said, "Mm, we think we've got a better idea. No, you're obviously right. I would be, (laughs) I think the bishops will. I mean, I'm posing it as will they, will they, will they. But in fact, I do think, no, I do think the bishops will approve it because the the bishops of Ohio have recommended it and the bishop of Steubenville has recommended it. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I would say that about the Holy See. I'm not. Or I'm not convinced that the Congregation for Bishops will go for it just because the bishops of the U.S. Oh. want to go for it. In fact, the Holy See seems perfectly okay with not going for things that the bishops of the U.S. want to do. Right. So that's true. I, I would. I would be even more surprised to learn that they hadn't. Rome hadn't already said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah go for it." And I think that's t- probably true. Go all the way principle. down the line of talking to your priests about. This is happening. We're having a consultation, but this is happening. Like if you've done all of that without Rome already basically saying, yeah, yeah, we see where you're going with this. It's fine. Um, that that would be really surprising. Yeah. I. Yes. Um, you're trying to keep an open mind and I applaud that. No, I'm not trying to keep you, an open mind. I mean, I think you're probably right. I'm the, I, I don't know about Rome, though, because Rome is – yes, I, they have consulted with Rome. And the, Bishop Monforton told me that he started the conversation with the nuncio and with the Congregation for Bishops. So obviously Rome has sort of said, go go ahead with these consultations. 
couple things stand out to me that I think are worth kind of noting about this. And I, I honestly, I haven't looked at the, di- the, 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 the demographics or the finances of the Diocese of Steubenville very carefully, so I don't know what the right thing to do is. But a couple things stand out to me procedurally about this. One, I know the Diocese of Steubenville put out relatively recently a kind of a five-year pastoral plan, and then a lot of people in the diocese were involved in that five-year pastoral plan. And I also know the Diocese of Steubenville, um, uh, you know, had had a, I'm pretty sure, published a, um, a synod, a diocesan synod report. And uh, I, does, I do not think that this element of things was, you know, this possibility of a merger was part of the diocesan synodal conversation, and it obviously wasn't a part of the diocesan pastoral plan. So uh, I don't know what Rome is going to say about the need for more. It is possible that Rome might say, now formally it's not required. For for other sort of juridic acts it's required, but formally it's not required. But I don't know if Rome might say we don't really see evidence of um, of a um, consultation in the diocese and um, whether that will become something which is a... Um, a concern for them that there there hasn't been sort of lay consultation about this decision. I don't know. I, I hope to find out as I'm working on this reporting, the degree to which there has been kind of clerical consultation. But you would think that the Holy See would want to um, at least, just given sort of the ordinary mechanisms of extraordinary acts of administration in the church, the Holy See would want, it, following its own sort of logic on those things, to check the boxes of, sort of stakeholder consultation, which is to say the, the diocese and the presbyterate. Even if the same, the conclusion is the same, I wonder if they'll say because this could be a template and all eyes are on Steubenville and et cetera, et cetera, and because synodality is important. And I was about to say, when are we going to right, drop the S word on synodal. this? Right. We want to see that there has been a kind of consultation. Uh, now, is that going to change the end result? I don't think so. But again, I think it, since if Rome looks at this as a template for what's going to happen with other American dioceses, they may decide. Look, we want to just get in the. We want to get in the habit of the fact that those things precede a decision on this. You may be right. I don't think that. Um, I don't think it's likely that there will be any kind of break on the process because, uh, generally speaking, when Rome looks at a at something that's going on in a U.S. diocese or a diocese anywhere in the world and and queries the extent and formality of the kind of consultation or consultative process that was followed and says, no, go back and do a bit more. That's usually the result of someone challenging it. And I'm not sure who would have standing to challenge this. And also the question is if you're going to challenge the, at an administrative level, the plan to merge two dioceses, whose administrative act is that? Well, it's the Pontiff's administrative act. And you can't challenge that. No, right. Exactly. But that's why preceding it, so interestingly, okay, I'm just saying procedurally, the, I'm not sure how you review this in a way that um, allows for a dicaster or a mercurius to say, go back and do more. If it happens, right? But the but the congregation for bishops. I mean, if the pope does it, then the pope has done it. And that's no, it. if the pope does but, it, the pope does it. It's done. But I'm just saying, even at the point where Rome is considering, like, have we done everything we want to do here? Um, you know, whether it's at the congregation for bishops or somewhere else. I again, who's going to flag that and by what mechanism? Well, here's say, the three most influential figures in this whole thing. Okay, here's the four most influential figures in this whole thing. Influential figure number one, Bishop Monforton. He's the driver of the thing. He has said, you know, to various media outlets, including ours, that he, you know, he kind of came to this conclusion and started talking to the bishops of Ohio about it. So, Bishop Monforton, one, two, the Apostolic Nuncio, Archbishop Pierre, because Archbishop Pierre is the one who sort of greenlit the consultation with the. Ohio dioceses, and subsequent to that vote of the Ohio dioceses, greenlit the consultation with the U.S. bishops in November. So, Pierre, those two have clearly been kind of uh, go ahead, go ahead. 
There are two other figures who I think are profoundly influential in what's going to happen next. Cardinal Blaise Stupich and Cardinal Joe Tobin. Why? They're members of the Congregation for Bishops. This is handled at the Congregation for Bishops. If they say, recognizing, okay, this is happening in America, and this is going to happen more in America, and we need to make sure. I mean, you remember the sort of uh, tremendous number of recourses that have been made in the Northeast, in the Archdiocese of Boston and other places about parish closures by yes. parishioners who say we weren't sufficiently consulted. And Rome has customarily and traditionally upheld their, um, their appeals if procedurally they weren't followed. There's a difference, which you are keen to point out, and I can see there's a difference, but still, in principle, we know that when people aren't asked about this kind of stuff, they're uh, displeased, right? They are. What did you want to say? What's the difference? Oh, one of the difference is that, uh, again, when when a bishop attempts to merge two parishes or close a parish or something like that, the parishioners of the affected place have legal standing to make recourse, and they have a, a mechanism and procedural law to make recourse against an, a, an executive act by the competent authority, in this case, the diocesan bishop. In this case, I'm not sure where where the process is for acquiring no, people legal not standing. Make recourse because yeah, it's, there's it's no an recourse administrative act of their own pontiff. So people yeah. could not make recourse about it. There are no normative procedural norms about it. But I think Supachin what? Tobin... What people are upset about, they weren't properly consulted in the Diocese of Steubenville, they're going to write letters to the Chicago Chancery? No. I think it's possible that Supachin Tobin might, though... It is possible. I'm not saying it's likely, but I think it's possible that those two guys, guys who are big-time synodal guys, guys who like the notion of synodality, may talk about liking the notion of synodality, may well say, look, if this is going to become the template, or if we want to do all these the same, we should do a thing where we build in a consultative stage regarding the presbyterates and the dioceses. Now, the question is, you know, is that where they're really tuned in, or are the guys who talk about synodality and fundamentally will support the decision a bishop made because a bishop made it, you, you judge that for themselves, but those are the two guys who are influential on either the process goes forward as it has happened, or there's some intervention at the congregation, and the congregation comes back to Steubenville and says, we'd like you to do X, Y, and Z before the congregation would make a recommendation to their own pontiff. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, and I don't think that's impossible. Or that the congregation recommends the Roman pontiff a sort of in persona episcopi sort of period, a, a, a getting used to things period. How do you do a unity in the person of the bishop? When you have two dioceses with two bishops, neither of whom is up for retirement anytime soon. You have to transfer well, one of them, right? So well, he, Yeah, so, one of them gets fired. Well, yeah. So a bunch of Montfortin's from Michigan. A bunch of Michigan dioceses are going to open up. You make Montfortin the bishop of a, of a Michigan diocese, and then you join these two dioceses so that they can share resources. One of two I things happens. Possible, yeah. This is what happens when you close a parish, right? When you merge parishes, a smart bishop, when he merge par- merges parishes, um, leaves the church open for a while because the shock of the parish closing is upsetting to people and he leaves the church open for a while so that people still have this place this significant sacred place which is actually meaningful in their actual lives open and over a period of time people generally speaking tend either they generally speaking tend to migrate to the central church of the parish the merged parish or it turns out and this is more rare but it turns out that the church can continue to operate in a sustainable way because people come forward and say this is important to us and they give the kind of money to happen to us to, to make it happen. So let's say you give Steubenville a period of in persona episcopy. One of two things will happen. Either the people will get used to the fact that a lot of things are happening in Columbus and it's kind of like there's a gradual breaking in period to that. Uh, or in that period, there is some kind of uh, renewal, resurgence or... Um, you know, uh, strengthening of certain things in the Diocese of Doomville and its vitality becomes more easily recognizable or demonstrable. 
right? I mean, either of those things could could happen, right? Yeah, I suppose. So again, do I think that's likely? No. If we're talking, I like talking about process, and if we're talking about sort of processes that will make these things make sense, and processes probably that respect certain elements of justice, and processes that sort of respect the theological reality, I could see how there'd be people who'd say those things would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Ed, I have been on an island all week. I have hardly any idea what's happening with the Vatican trial, and I'd like to know. So there has been a, a little bit of a, a fun development in the Vatican financial trial this week, which is Stefano DeSantis, who is a commissioner in the Vatican gendarmes, um, a commissioner in, not the commissioner of. It, it's a sort of false friend language thing. Commissioner in the Vatican gendarme service means sort of like senior investigator, senior inspector. It doesn't mean you actually run the police service. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, he was giving evidence, and he said that on October 3rd of 2020, he and um, Gianluca Broccoletti, um, he's the actual head of the Vatican Gendarmes, the two of them anyway nipped along. Yes. Um, he and DeSantis nipped along to Cardinal Angelo Becciu's Vatican apartment, this is on October 3rd, 2020, to update him on, um, on, on basically what they discovered about your friend and mine, but mostly yours, Cecilia Maragna. Cecilia Maragna, Cecilia uh, Maragna, yes. Cecilia Maragna time. Cardinal Betchu's uh, otherwise sort of self-styled private spy. How do you suggest her name is pronounced in Italian? Maronia? Maronia, yeah. Oh, that's silly. Let's just keep calling her Cecilia Maragna. Yeah, definitely. Cecilia Maragna um, time. Anyway. Cecilia uh, Maragna, if you're not a long-time listener to this podcast, is the kind of girl you take to the prom if you drive in Iraq and... Um, have a lot of hair gel. I don't. I don't think that's actually true of the real. When person. a movie is made about all of this, Cece Maragna will be played by a young Marissa Tomei. <laughs> that's not true. Cece Maragna, but I see where you. Yeah, I understand. This is not an episode of The Sopranos, JD. This is very much more Godfather Part Three. Um, <laughs> so what happened was, according to DeSantis, which um, basically they went and they they told Cardinal Betchu in his apartment uh, that look. There's Interpol have flagged more than half a million's worth of euros of payments that have gone to Moronia's Slovenian-based company. That we think this is embezzlement. That you know it seems to have been blown all on as we've as as there's been extensive reporting on um, designer label handbags, luxury goods, sort of five-star resorts around the world. And they said, you know, this is this is not looking good. This is looking pretty bad. This is looking you know Interpol are involved. Like this is. This this looks like pretty all straight up and down criminality here. And Cardinal Betchu apparently said, oh, well, I'll pay the money back out of my own pocket. Like offered to yeah, write them a check crazy. out of his IOR account on that's the spot. Crazy. That's just For 575,000 euros is what this all told him. He's like, no, 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 no. Well, we got to keep this quiet. So I'll just, I'll pay it back. Whatever, you know, whatever the ticket is, you know, you you let me know. You tell me how many. I'm just going to start writing, and you just tell me how many zeros to put here, and we're going to make this problem go away. And obviously, mm-hmm. that that's not how it worked. Um, but what what what's astonishing about? And then, it, according to DeSantis, Bet you said we have to keep this quiet. We have to keep this private because it would be disastrous for me and my family. We can't, you know, we can't have this kind of scandal getting out. Now, there's a couple of hilarious things about all of this. The first is. Cardinal Betchu doesn't dispute 95% of this. Like he was mm-hmm. in court. He's one of the few defendants who turns up to the trial every day and listens in person. Um, you know, he's there. And after DeSantis, you know, sort of finished giving his evidence, Betchu offered to make a spontaneous 
statement to the court, like basically saying, can I have five minutes for a bottle, yeah, please? Right. Mm-hmm. And like, sure, Which is kind of unusual it. all by itself, isn't it? Kind of unusual all by itself. It's not normally how things go in a trial. Um, but, you know, the judges were like, yeah, have at it, Haas. Go for it. What do you want to yeah. say? And and bet you confirmed the meeting, um, confirmed the date and place of the meeting, said, I didn't ask them to come to my apartment. They just came, which yeah. I, six to one, half dozen the other. I find it unlikely that Sua Sponte they went. But then on the other hand, I knowing what I know about um, how people in the Curia in those days spoke about the relationship between the Office of the Substitute, the Secretary of State, and the Vatican Gendarmes, they may have just felt like that's just the way you do things. Um, yeah. So I I could go either way on that. Not really do important. People, do people, are people in Rome having the same response to why does the guy have 500,000 euro that I'm having to that and that you're having to that? Are they apoplectic about this 500? Oh, I'm not surprised that Cardinal Betchew you know, could write a check for No, I'm not surprised that he has it, but I guess I'd have been worried about him if he couldn't. <laughs> I mean, Fabrizio Tirabassi, whose job was basically to make the coffee and do the Xeroxing in the office, had a, had a Swiss bank account with 1.3 million euros into it, a couple hundred thousand in cash and shoeboxes in his second home, and, you know, gold coins sort of stacked up the back of the wardrobe. If Cardinal Betchew can't write a check for a half a million, uh, you know, I'd worry about the guy. If a priest in America or even a bishop in America or a cardinal in America said, oh, don't worry, uh, there was something happening with the diocese, but don't worry, or the parish or whatever, but I'll just write a check for 500000 everyone would think immediately, okay, bam, whatever, That's Archbishop whatever Weakland. he's done, he's done something wrong. You know, whatever he's done, he's done something wrong. You just wrong, described so. Archbishop Weakland, but okay. Okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough, right? And everyone can say there's something not right about that, right? So... Um, is that the sense that people are having in the courtroom about that? If you have 500,000, no. something's not right. Or for Curio Cardinal, people are like, well, okay. Yeah. What, do you, what do you want? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'll, I'll, look, let me be completely honest. It's a lot of money. But at the same time, the guy's around 70. He's had a long career. He makes a living wage. He's never had to pay rent in his entire life. Yeah. He's never had to pay for his own travel in his entire life. He's a career diplomat. I buy that he's got a couple of hundred in a bank account. I just cannot wait to see what happens next. I feel well, like this so, is a problem. No, hang on. That's not the, we haven't even gotten into the funny part yet. What? So Cardinal Betchew confirms the meeting took place, confirms the when and the where and the with whom. Says, I didn't ask them to come. They just showed up. And again, six to one, half dozen the other. I, I, I The fact that the senior Vatican cops were briefing the subject of an investigation about the progress of their investigation in his home. Draw your own conclusions. Nobody's disputing that happened. What's hilarious is the date, October 3rd, 2020, which is a week after Pope Francis fired Betchew from the Curia and made him resign his rights and privileges as a cardinal. So he is officially and publicly in disgrace and under suspicion and pending charging right now. And the cops are still turning up to his house to give him the inside track on how the investigation yeah, is going. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. The guy has clearly a loyal following, right? I mean, people who really are willing to mm-hmm. keep him in yeah. the know. That is um, Car- Yeah, Cardinal Betchew does not dispute that he offered to make restitution for basically the money that his private spy allegedly embezzled from the Vatican, um, which is, again, hilarious. Doesn't dispute that. The only thing he seemed to really take issue with is he said, I never told them we needed to keep this quiet for my sake and the sake of my family. I said we needed to keep this quiet so we didn't embarrass the Holy Father because this was all his idea. Oh, my gosh. Which so is, it doesn't embarrass the Holy Father because this is all his idea. It's quite a thing. It, well, I mean, this is his defense now. Is every time he gets asked, oh, the Pope told me to do it. The Pope, the Pope told me to do it. And yeah. what's very funny about the payments to Sisi Moronia is this. Um, you have everything that she has said in her various 
um, sporadic media appearances in Italy about what she did for Cardinal Becciu. You know, she, she maintains this claim that she was sort of a fixer and a go-between to try to negotiate the release of kidnapped clergy and religious around the world, although there is absolutely zero evidence that that ever happened, that she played any part in the release of, you know, things like, for example, this religious sister that was released about this time last year, mm-hmm. that Moronia was allegedly tasked with helping secure the release of, like, th- there's there's zero evidence that any of that happened. All we can find evidence of is that she brought herself an absolute ton of Louis Vuitton yeah. with Vatican money. That's yeah. all we can say for sure. Yeah. Um, so there's that. She's also said at various times that Cardinal Betchew charged her with basically coming up with compromat dossiers on senior curial officials for him, you know, basically like blackmail material. So that's not great. But that we knew. I mean, that we knew. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. so my point is, Betchew's response to all this has been right the way along. Well, Pope Francis approved the the plan and he approved it under strict secrecy. Now, I don't actually have a hard time believing that is true to a point. Like, I believe if you're the substituto, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, and you go to Pope Francis and you say, I want you to approve a total black bag budget of up to a million euros for me to pay this fixer so that we can try and secretly get some kidnapped priests and religious out of yeah. kidnapping, the Pope would say, yeah, okay, do that. Yeah. You know, and keep it Cardinal quiet. Becciu, it seems to me, would also be prudent enough to make sure that he did that CYA, right? I mean, he would exactly. not, he would know, I need this CYA in the bank. I would almost think he'd want to email with the Pope about it or have a memo with the Pope's signature on it so that he could... Either it, way, you know, it, yeah. it, it does not require a gigantic logical leap of faith for me to right. believe that the Pope did approve up to a million euros to do the things that Cardinal Betchew has said this was supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people say, why doesn't the Pope just contradict him and cut him off? At this point, I'm like, why would the Pope need to? Right. Like the question is not – it is not materially germane whether or not Pope Francis approved the use of hundreds of thousands or even a million euros for an ostensibly good – purpose that you would obviously want to keep very, very quiet and off the books. Right. The point is that none of the people involved in that spent any of the money on that. Yeah, that's right. That's what they're accused of. They're not accused of running a black ops hostage negotiation program. They're accused of embezzling money. Like, that's the crime, allegedly. So it's very, very funny to me that um, this is all just kind of coming out. And I have to say, Pope Francis's silence on all of this is looking increasingly dignified and possibly even prudent, because every time Cardinal Betchew blames the Pope in all of this, it it looks a little crazier. It looks a little sketchier. Right. Um, And, you know, as Monsignor Perlaska has Cardinal Betchew's former deputy at the Secretary of State, who was had the job to, for example, prepare on multiple occasions envelopes of tens of thousands of euros in cash for Cardinal Betchew, right. which he wouldn't say what it was for. He just sort of arrived at the office, picked it up and disappeared. Or wiring Moronia hundreds of thousands of euros. And and Perlaska has told prosecutors say, I, I didn't know what it was for. I didn't know where the money was going. I didn't know who Moronia was. I didn't know the name. I didn't even know it was a woman until you guys told me in the course of this investigation. Betchew just said, send the money here. And don't ask any questions. The Pope approved it. And it's all hush hush. And so I did. And then Betchew got really mad at Perlaska when the investigators started looking into this. And and Perlaska said, yeah, well, this is what I did. Of course. You know, he told me it was all the Pope okayed everything. And Betchew apparently like flipped his lid at Perlaska and said, why didn't you delete all the evidence of the transfers? To which Perlaska said, and I have to agree with him, but if the Pope ordered it, why would I need to delete the evidence? Yeah. And the idea that you have to like be secretive about it, and it's all states. Like, this is the Secretary of State. Everything there is a secret. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So this is this is unraveling fast, at least from what I can tell. 
This is this yeah. is looking more and more like a and I have said this right the way along. Anyone who's you know been following our coverage over several years to do with the Vatican financial trials, I've always said the interesting thing here is not the London property deal. Has never yeah. been the London property deal. Right. The the Secretary of State managed to lose hundreds of millions of euros on the London property deal. No question. Yeah. It was a terrible move, but there's no yeah. obvious criminality to it that I can right. see. Right. It's a deal designed to lose money. It's a deal designed to benefit everyone except the Vatican. Except the Holy sure. See, who didn't except the Holy See. Now, you know, didn't Gianluigi Torzi actually try and extort the Secretary of State at the end of all of it? Or maybe. did they just sign off on something they didn't understand? Yeah, didn't maybe, understand. you know, you can flip a coin on that one. I don't know. But my, my point is the the real stuff that has always been to me, the sort of, you know, you've got to look into it. This is where the real criminality, this is where the real naked fraud is going on, has been the stuff around the margins. Uh, the London property deal was just the investigators way into all of this. Yeah. The stuff around Morania is unraveling fast. We haven't even started looking into the sort of Enrico Crasso stuff that, you know, again, if you read the hundreds of pages uh, of the prosecutor's sort of initial indictment file that they dropped a year and a half ago or whatever it was, you know, stuff like the, the fake investment in the, in the U S highway that doesn't exist, all yeah. of that stuff, you know, I, I mean, this is where the fun stuff and it's starting to happen that, you know, we've had the summer break. We're in, we've heard from all the defendants sort of getting their first word in, and now we're getting into the prosecution witnesses and it's starting to get fun. What's cool, Ed, is that a lot of things that we have been writing about now for four years are, um, and, and covering, finding in documents are now coming out on the stand, and uh, and so it's it's things are getting crazy, and it's I'm glad you are um, our guide for the crazy things that is happening. They're getting papered up in the Vatican. I don't know what that I don't know what that means. You have a Snoop Dogg papered up. Yeah. This episode of the Pillar Podcast. Make money, is, money. Make money, money. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Sunday School, a Pillar Bible study. If you are interested in learning about Scripture, tune in as Dr. Scott Powell teaches me all about Scripture. Season 1 is a deep dive into the Gospel of Mark. Get Sunday School, a Pillar Bible study, wherever you get your podcast. Ed, are you listening to... Ed, has, Ed plays a very prominent role in Sunday School that I hope you'll find out. Check it out, because Ed does what Ed does best. Are you listening to Sunday School? Do you like it? Yes, I am, and I do. I like it very much, although I have to record, um, I have to record my contribution for the next three episodes this afternoon and the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd production i'm your host jd flynn joined by my podcasting partner and pal ed condon our executive producer is kate Oliveira, who's doing a great job uh if you like the pillar don't forget to go to pillarcatholic.com and um, subscribe also give us a rating on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and check out sunday school a pillar bible study on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast give that a rating too and again that is a little bible study gift from the pillar to you so if you like it go to pillarcatholic.com and become a subscriber that's how we make these things happen Feeling out of place, cause man, do I miss a pen and a paper, a stereo, a tape of me and Warren G in a big fat plate of chicken wings, cause that's my favorite thing. But without no money, man, that shit's a